to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 27th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Partnership stokes kids' curiosity about nature. You can already see it connecting and making a difference. By Isabella Saluska, out of Iowa City. One by one, 13 brave students at the Pheasant Ridge Neighborhood Center took turns meeting Sniffles, a western fox snake. The four-year-olds used two fingers to feel the snake's dry and scaly skin, with some students holding on, excuse me, holding or even putting the snake around their necks. Meanwhile, Sniffles was flicking its tongue out, which the kids learned is how snakes smell and learn about their surroundings. The students were engaged during the hour as they made observations about reptiles, listened to story time, and interacted with two snakes and two ornate box turtles. The kids got more comfortable and curious about the animals during the program. Do you think that, as a naturalist, you might want to keep studying reptiles? Kristen Morrow, a naturalist with Johnson County Conservation, asked the class at the end of the session last Thursday. A chorus of, yeah, came as a response. Johnson County Conservation began visiting the neighborhood centers of Johnson County's early childhood education classes last month through a new partnership. Once a month during the school year, the three- and four-year-olds at Pheasant Ridge and Broadway Neighborhood Centers in Iowa City get hands-on nature programming. This partnership is an extension of the county's Nature Buds program, which has been offered for about a decade at Kent Park. Morrow told the Gazette the free monthly programming at Kent Park has always been popular, but one of the things that troubled staff was that It has a level of privilege attached to it since activities are in the middle of the week and require driving out to Kent Park near Oxford, Morrow said. For a couple of years, county conservation has wanted to do something that would bring these kinds of programs into the community and make it accessible to more people, Morrow said. That clicked into place this year. The Neighborhood Centers of Johnson County was the first organization that came to mind for Morrow. The organization is a community-based, family-centered human services agency offering programs in area schools and neighborhoods, according to its website. We already provide programming for their kids during the summertime, and so we were already aware of the work that they were doing, but they also fill such a great role within the community, Morrow said. Programming is already making a difference. Jana Garretts, Director of Learning and Care Programs at Neighborhood Centers, is excited about the partnership and expressed what a great opportunity it is for the kids. You can already see it connecting and making a difference in their life, Geralt's said. Last month's programming was about animal tracks and featured an animal track scavenger hunt set up around the classroom. In the following weeks, kids spotted tracks outside in the snow and near the playground, Geralt said. As simple as that animal track is, it's just one more way to help instill that sense of awe and connection, Morrow said, adding that it is another part in making kids more aware of the ecosystem around them. The students will finish off the school year with a trip to Kent Park. Geralt said the field trip will be a culmination of their learning. Introducing kids to nature. Geralt said sometimes there can be a disconnect between kids and nature, so anything we can do to help bridge that gap will be really great. Introducing children to nature at a young age gives them the ability to be comfortable with nature and feel less scared, Geralt's added. I think the benefits are immense, Geralt said. Just being out in nature and experiencing it, interacting with it, it just does something to the body and to the mind that really helps center and focus you. Morrow added how kids can also feel more comfortable with different animals and are more willing to be compassionate toward all creatures in the ecosystem. It also helps kids explore their surroundings and be more aware of what's around them. 
their brain is just more likely to have a fuller comprehension of all the different pieces of the ecosystem around us, Morrow said. If you're not exposed to that at an early age, it's like a piece of language that's missing. Building relationships. Geralt said the partnership has been wonderful. Morrow said she is eager to continue the program for the following school year, which will allow county conservation to further build a relationship with the students and for the students to keep connecting with nature. With the Nature Buds programming at Camp Park, Morrow said kids visit even after they've graduated from the program. She hopes this type of relationship can be built with the students at the neighborhood centers. It's cool to see that they, can, that they continue to have a strong passion for nature and that in some way the Nature Bugs program has helped to be a piece of that, Morrow said. Our next story is how train derailment erupted into culture war. This is out of the Washington Post. Two weeks after a train carrying toxic chemicals went off the tracks in northeastern Ohio, President Joe Biden sat in the Oval Office listening intently as his national security team briefed him on a different train almost 5,000 miles away, ultimately agreeing to take a clandestine rail trip into Kiev. His decision to make the trip won praise globally, but inflamed already brewing domestic tensions over his handling of the train derailment in the small town of East Palestine. Biden had already taken a number of behind-the-scenes steps on the derailment before that February 17th meeting, calling governors, dispatching federal experts to the area, and receiving briefings from top advisors. It was seen in the White House as a by-the-book response to a non-fatal event in a lightly populated area. But by the time the president arrived in Kiev on February 20th, the accident in East Palestine had surprised the White House and many others, by erupting into the country's latest cultural firefight over identity, polarization, and the role of government. And by the time Biden returned to Washington, his aides were battling accusations that he had forsaken a small, predominantly white town as it struggled with the aftermath of an environmental catastrophe caused by a multi-billion dollar company. Many of the accusations were made by Biden's political adversaries, abetted by a spate of criticism on right-wing social media accounts, not all of them accurate, including the charge that federal officials ignored the crash when they sent personnel as they normally would. Still, it seems clear that the administration was unprepared for the possibility that the non-fatal crash would become a prism for the country's political battles. It's an environmental crisis. The optics matter, said Douglas Brinkley, a presidential historian who has written about the government's handling of Hurricane Katrina. A president or cabinet secretary would not normally show up immediately at such an accident site, in part to avoid interfering with emergency crews, experts said. But after the incident went viral, the absence of Biden and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was seized on by conservatives to argue that the White House was uninterested in small-town America. White House aides countered that the administration was focused on solving problems on the ground, testing the air quality, interviewing witnesses, and providing technical guidance, while others played politics. Still, the predicament in East Palestine has only grown more fraught and frenzied, especially after the emergence of images of a black plume looming over East Palestine. It was a result of a controlled release of chemicals to avoid an explosion, but to some it symbolized the idea of dark threats hovering over small-town America. In recent days, former President Donald Trump has arrived at the scene, offering branded water bottles and political swipes. Buttigieg has expressed regret for not speaking up sooner, and conservative outlets have broadcast a loop of images of dead fish and distraught residents to bolster a narrative of government neglect. 
Democrats have cast the incident as a tale of corporate malfeasance, blaming Republicans for gutting safety regulations. This account of how a train derailment, one of about 1,000 each year in America, morphed into the latest front in the nation's culture wars, is based on interviews with administration officials, lawmakers, rail safety experts, local residents, historians, and environmental advocates, some of whom spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal deliberations. What happened? Biden himself addressed the controversy Excuse me. Biden himself addressed the controversy publicly for the first time Friday. I've spoken with every single major figure in both Pennsylvania and in Ohio. The idea that we're not engaged is just simply not there, he told reporters. That there was just three weeks after the three-person crew of a Norfolk Southern train received an alert about an overheating wheel bearing as they rolled through northeastern Ohio on February 3rd. The alert indicated that the bearing had risen to 250 degrees Fahrenheit above the air temperature, tripping an emergency threshold, according to a preliminary National Transportation Safety Board report released Thursday. The engineer immediately applied the brakes and an automatic braking system kicked in. But minutes later, the train derailed and several tank cars erupted in flames. Despite the fiery images of mangled train cars, it was not immediately clear that this incident would be any different from most derailments. No one had been killed or injured. There were no initial signs of sabotage or negligence by the train crew. Federal authorities were almost immediately alerted to the derailment and the fact that 20 of the 149 cars on the train were carrying hazardous materials, and within hours, officials from the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Transportation Safety Board, and other agencies arrived on site. By Saturday afternoon, federal and state officials had begun testing the air and municipal water, detecting no concerning levels of contaminants. Anybody that lives on these streets, the air as of right now is still fine. Our drinking water is still fine, East Palestine Mayor Trent Conway told reporters. The next day, Biden called Mike DeWine, Ohio's Republican governor, to say the federal government was prepared to provide any additional assistance he might need. For more than a week, DeWine excuse me, DeWine, did not call back with such requests, saying the situation was under control. Controversy grows. But for many residents of East Palestine, a village of 4,700 in a deep red slice of northeastern Ohio, the assurances from DeWine and other government officials provided little comfort as they sought answers about strange symptoms, scoured social media for information and recalled past instances when experts downplayed environmental hazards only to reverse course later. Then on February 5th, with fires still smoldering, temperatures in one of the five tank cars carrying highly toxic gas began rising to dangerous levels, prompting fears of a catastrophic explosion. Residents were ordered to evacuate. DeWine says he spent hours on the phone with Democratic Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro before deciding to sign off on a controlled release of the chemicals. DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney described it as a harrowing choice between two bad options, each with potentially catastrophic outcomes, controlled release or an uncontrolled explosion with shrapnel. Executives from Norfolk Southern told the governors that if an explosion occurred, shrapnel could rain down for at least a mile. Shapiro would later say the company's executives had been secretive and misleading during the discussions. Norfolk Southern declined to make CEO Alan Shaw available for an interview. Images of the plume circulating online several days later helped transform the accident from a local matter to a national flashpoint. 
Residents were given clearance to return to their homes on February 8th. The EPA deployed a special plane to monitor air hazards, finding nothing of alarm. But when residents of East Palestine went back home, they began reporting unexplained symptoms. Some had headaches, others were nauseous. Some complained of itchy skin or dizziness. People also spotted dead fish in creeks and complained of odd smells. State officials said that despite these phenomena, air and water testing showed no chemicals above hazardous thresholds. Some residents wondered why the Federal Emergency Management Agency did not show up, but officials said the case did not qualify for FEMA aid because there wasn't massive home or property damage. The agency later did send a team. It would take until February 21st for Biden to comment publicly on it. When he did, it was on Twitter, and the president jumped quickly into the political fray. Heck, many of the elected officials pointing fingers right now want to dismantle the EPA, the agency that is making sure this cleanup happens, the president wrote in a long thread. Fox News host Tucker Carlson used his show to bring race into the discussion, decrying an alleged lack of urgency by the government for a blue-collar community with few people of color. Is it because these are not their voters, he asked Senator J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio, who agreed with the premise. Minutes later, Buttigieg sent his first public comments on the incident, tweeting that he was concerned about the impact of the derailment. He would later express regret that he had not spoken up sooner, telling CBS News, that's a lesson learned for me. I'll turn to the Iowa Today government notes section. Marion Independent celebrates facility work. Also, Iowa City Parks scheduled to get improvements. The Marion Independent School District is celebrating progress on its facility master plan, which includes a scoreboard with the school's logo and with play clocks and stadium lights being added to the Marion football field. In addition to a new scoreboard, the stadium is getting electrical and technology installations. A sound system was installed earlier this month, and an elevator will be completed by mid-March. In January, the 1955 addition to Francis Marion Intermediate School was demolished and the debris hauled away. In its place will be built a new secured entryway. Other renovations at Francis Marion Intermediate were completed earlier during the 2022-23 school year, including updating aging classrooms. Construction bids for the new auditorium at Marion High School are being received until Thursday. The new auditorium at the high school campus 675 South 15th Street, will increase seating from 300 to 800 and is about a $7.7 million project. The current auditorium will be converted into classrooms. The work is being done as a part of a $31 million bond sale approved by voters in March 2021. Projects include building a new elementary school, auditorium, and outdoor activities complex at Marion High School and making repairs to other district buildings. Four Iowa City Parks getting improvements. Four Iowa City Parks will get various improvements later this year. The city will spend $868,000 for improvements at Kiwanis, Hunter's Run, Happy Hollow, and Hickory Hill Parks. The city council last week unanimously approved the project outline and estimated cost. Projects include playground improvements at Kiwanis, Hunter's Run and Happy Hollow, as well as shelter and restroom replacements at Hickory Hill. There also will be sidewalk and accessibility improvements at all four of the parks, according to a city memo. Parks and Recreation Director Julie Sadell Johnson said the goal is to get all four projects done, but pointed out Hickory Hill is an alternate, is an alternate because of the volatile bid environment. 
We want to make sure that we protect and be able to do as much as we can on the other projects. Hope to get all four done, but that gives us a little bit of decision-making if that doesn't happen, Dell Johnson said. The Kiwanis playground will be replaced while maintaining the existing playground limits and the natural theme, according to the city memo. The Hunter's Run playground also will be replaced. The playground at Happy Hollow will be removed and a new playground boundary will be installed. The new playground equipment will be selected this spring. The baseball field at Happy Hollow also will be improved. At Hickory Hill, the restrooms and shelter off of Conklin Lane would be replaced. City staff worked with Friends of Hickory Hill during the design. Construction is anticipated to occur from April to October. Iowa City Buying Home for Flood Mitigation The City of Iowa City is purchasing a home on Manor Drive near the Iowa River for flood mitigation. The home at 500 Manor Drive will be purchased for $276,000 using the city's emergency reserve. The City Council approved the purchase at its meeting last week. The property is located within the 100-year floodplain. City staff is proposing the house be demolished and for the lot to be maintained as green space as part of the city's flood mitigation measures. City attorney Eric Gores said the homeowner approached the city asking if the city would be interested in purchasing the home as she is getting ready to move out. After the 2008 flood, the city bought 92 homes in the Parkview Terrace and Taft Speedway neighborhoods through a voluntary program. These homes, except for the historic Ned Ashton House, were demolished and are being maintained as green space. Since the program wrapped up, the city has purchased seven additional homes, four with grant funds and three with local funds from the emergency reserve. The home at 500 Manor Drive was significantly damaged during the 2008 flood, according to a memo from city staff. These ongoing buyout efforts contribute to the greater community flood mitigation strategy by removing people and property from harm's way, staff wrote in the memo. Our next story is demolition of I-74 bridge is a big task. New Mississippi River Bridge fully open to traffic in 2021 by Ed Tibbetts from the Iowa Capital Dispatch. For years, people in the Quad Cities have awaited demolition of the old Interstate 74 bridge between Bettendorf and Moline. It's not that people here hate the bridge, although the narrow road width and nearly non-existent shoulders gave some drivers the shakes. It's just that its demise would mean the new bridge, in the planning stages for decades, would finally be complete. The new bridge fully opened to traffic in December 2021. Anticipation of the span's demise is some in some quarters, was driven by the prospect that it would be imploded, that the old twin bridges might be brought down in a spectacular crash of steel, concrete, and dust. Alas, it was not to be. Iowa Department of Transportation officials said last year there would be no big implosion. Instead, crews are undertaking more nuanced methods, if that's the right word to describe the demolition of two spans that include 16 million tons of steel piers that plunge into the Mississippi Riverbed, and large towers and accompanying suspension cables that rise high above the road surface. Despite the lack of one big implosion, however, the intricacies of dismantling the bridge while simultaneously limiting environmental effects and maintaining safety for work crews, river traffic, and drivers traversing the new I-74 span nearby is no simple task or boring task. Since last September, planners, engineers, laborers, carpenters, ironworkers, and electricians, among others, have methodically toiled to dismantle the spans, one built in 1935 and the other finished in 1960. 
Helm Group, whose corporate base is in Freeport, Illinois, has the $23.3 million demolition, excuse me, demolition contract. From a distance, the bridge doesn't look that much different, but up close, the changes are visible. A chunk of the span on the Bettendorf side of the river is gone. The concrete decking over the river also has been taken out, while roughly 4 million tons of steel have been removed, according to a recent estimate. Still, there is plenty of complex work left to be done. Because of the proximity of the new bridge and the interrelation among the different spans that make up the old I-74 bridge, there are actually four different bridge types that make up the structure. Extra planning and care must be taken to limit movement of the old bridge while its various pieces are removed. It's all interconnected, so when you start removing a bridge like this, you actually have to engineer how you're going to remove it. It's a very complicated process, said George Ryan, who is the I-74 corridor manager. For example, steps had to be taken to balance removal of concrete and steel to limit the movement of the bridge towers. Those towers will move, Ryan said. Protecting the environment. In addition, on the moline side of the span, they could not let steel pieces hit the water because of the presence of mussel beds. So they had to work from barges. This also is where there are fairly shallow areas of the river. Officials have estimated 1.2 million mussels, including endangered species protected by federal law, are in the I-74 bridge footprint. A significant number of the mussels have been removed, beginning with a big effort in 2016, but a large number remain. We're trying to minimize the impact to those mussels and the river in general, said Scott Gritters, fisheries biologist with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Any of those features of the bridge, if we blow it up or tear it down, could drop on the mussel bed itself, and we're trying to do our best to minimize those impacts to that bed. The mussels also carry benefits for the river. They filter plankton and bacteria out of the river, Gritters said, which help the entire system. They're kind of like a mini sewer treatment plant, he said taking down the towers. As the steel is removed, it is cut up into smaller pieces, then taken by local recyclers. The demolition contractor is allowed to sell the steel to recyclers, a practice that lowers the price of the bid and the cost to taxpayers, Ryan said. It's a pretty high-value steel, he says. This summer is when the more dramatic task of demolishing the signature green towers and suspension cables is expected to take place. The contractor's intent is to use explosives to take down the towers and suspension cables, and it will be done one bridge at a time. Ryan said the use of explosives, which must meet state and federal requirements, will involve a coordinated effort among the contractor, the U.S. Coast Guard, Army Corps of Engineers, Environmental Protection Agency, the Iowa DNR, the Iowa and Illinois DOTs, and the cities of Moline and Bettendorf. The contractor's plan is under review, Ryan said, but commercial and recreational traffic along the river will be shut down then. It is anticipated that vehicular traffic on the new I-74 bridge will be shut down too. Its estimated closures of the new bridge would last about an hour at a time. There is likely to be a great deal of public interest in this part of the operation, so more information will be released later. Explosive explosives also will be likely to be used to remove select support piers, Others will be removed by hydraulic methods, with those in the Mississippi River taken down to a point two feet below the bottom of the river. Traffic closures also are anticipated when those explosions take place. Not all of the piers will be removed. Two piers on the Illinois side of the river will be left so as to minimize disruption to the mussel habitat. Navigation lights will be installed to aid boaters. 
The demolition also involves an underwater survey to ensure all the debris is removed, along with a final cleanup along the riverbanks. Completion of the project is expected in mid-2024. After that, the span that once carried an average of 74,000 vehicles per day will be gone. The tall green towers that grace the skyline here for decades will fully give way to the twin basket handle arches on the new span that now are a prominent architectural feature in the Quad City skyline. Preserving History Still, not all of the old I-74 bridge will be lost forever. A two-foot-long section of cross-frame from the span built in 1935 was donated in 2021 to the Putnam Museum and Science Center in Davenport, where it has been on display in the museum's local history exhibit. The I-74 bridge team is also coordinating with the cities of Moline and Bettendorf about preserving pieces of the old bridge, perhaps to go to local museums. Those discussions are in the early stages. The piece moved to the Putnam was donated after the museum reached out to the bridge team looking for photographs, said Nora Moriarty, curatorial project coordinator at the museum. The exhibit with the bridge piece is currently closed for renovation, but when it reopens, the section of bridge will be back on display, Moriarty said. The previous I-74 bridge is something that just about every Quad citizen has driven across and is a part of our lives living here, she said. In addition, preserving pieces of the old bridge causes us to remember that our heritage isn't just something that exists in the past. It helps remind people their living history every day. Okay, we're going to turn to the insight section for a guest column opinion by David Wendell. Title, Buses and Barstools, Landmark Civil Rights Anniversaries. Rosa Parks was born 110 years ago this month. The civil rights leader, a native of historic Tuskegee, Alabama, became world-renowned when she refused to give up her seat to a white passenger on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, on December 1, 1955. A bus boycott by all people of color and their supporters lasted for 381 days, and the Montgomery public transit system saw a loss of 20,000 riders who walked or carpooled as a result. A young 25-year-old preacher from the nearby Dexter Baptist Church, Martin Luther King Jr., was named as leader of the effort and began a life's passion for correcting racial injustice across the country. Parks was arrested and convicted in city court of disorderly conduct and ordered to pay a fine of $10 plus $4 in court costs. Her attorney, Fred Gray, whom she had known in her capacity as secretary for the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP, appealed the case but lost. The next year, the U.S. District Court, upon hearing a similar but separate case, also based in Montgomery, ruled that racial segregation on public transportation was unconstitutional. It was the economic impact and loss of revenue from the bus boycott, however, that demonstrated the collective power of people of color in Alabama and, prospectively, cities throughout the South. It wasn't just the courts, but peaceful protests that ultimately made the difference. It also wasn't just Rosa Parks. Nine months before, on March 2, 1955, a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin had refused to give up her seat on her way home from school. She was arrested, but had better luck in court than Parks, with Gray also as her lawyer. Initially convicted, Gray appealed on behalf of her and three other women, including Aurelia Browder. They each had been forced to move off the bus, and in June of 1956, the district court ruled in favor of Colvin and Browder, declaring the segregated bus system to be a violation of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, guaranteeing equal protection under the law. The city of Montgomery then attempted to override the ruling, 
petitioning the United States Supreme Court to review it. The justices, on November 13, 1965, upheld the lower court's decision affirming equal rights on public transit. From a legal perspective, the case of Rosa Parks was a setback. It was Claudette Colvin and Aurelia Browder whose arrest and court case actually defined the law. Nonetheless, the subsequent attention brought to racial discrimination by the bus boycott and publicity garnered by the charismatic Martin Luther King Jr. brought change not just to public transportation, but the scourge of racial inequity across America. Colvin moved to New York, where she became a nurse in a Manhattan retirement home. She received a Congressional Certificate of Achievement from Alabama 14th District U.S. Representative Joe Crowley, and in 2021, the record record of her arrest was ordered expunged. Browder, who was 20 years older, went on to earn a degree in science from Alabama State University, then became a nurse and an active member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She died in 1971. Parks, who ascended to iconic status as a symbol of the civil rights movement, relocated to Detroit and served as a staffer for U.S. Representative John Conyers for 24 years. In 1996, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Bill Clinton, and upon her death in 2005, Parks became the first woman to be accorded the honor of lying in state beneath the dome of the U.S. Capitol. Iowa, though, had its own much less known leader in civil rights, and she made her stand seven years ahead of Colvin, Browder, and Parks. Edna Griffin was a native of Lexington, Kentucky, but moved to Des Moines when her husband enrolled to be a doctor at what is now Des Moines University. On July 7, 1948, she and her children stopped by Katz Drugstore at 7th and Locust and ordered an ice cream soda. The owner, Maurice Katz, refused to serve her, saying the store was not equipped to serve colored people. Griffin then initiated a criminal lawsuit against Katz, claiming he had violated the Iowa 1884 Civil Rights Act. At the same time, with members of the local chapter of the NAACP, she also led marches and picketed in front of the store. The district court ruled in her favor, citing the law passed by the legislature 64 years previous, the 1884 Act, interestingly, didn't outright ban discrimination everywhere in the state, but did make it a crime to deny the full and equal enjoyment at restaurants, inns, lunch counters, barbershops, and theaters, or other places of amusement in Iowa. With that section of state law supporting her, the lower court ruled she and others were entitled to be served and leveled a fine of $50 against the owner of the drugstore. Griffin, not satisfied, wanted to make a larger point and filed a lawsuit claiming $10,000 in damages against Katz. The civil courts also ruled in her favor, but reluctant to invoke a crippling financial blow to the store, awarded Griffin $1. Despite the limited award, it was considered a moral victory for all people of color, and today Edna Griffin Parks stands at the corner of College Avenue and 13th Street, a few blocks north of the former drugstore, as a memorial to one of the Hawkeye State's pivotal civil rights leaders. Griffin, who died in 2000, was also honored in 2004 with the naming of the Edna Griffin Memorial Pedestrian Bridge, where Interstate 235 separates two sides of town, as a symbol of the connection between people she brought to the city more than half-century before. You can learn more of her story of determination by visiting the site of the drugstore in the renamed Edna Griffin Building, which bears a plaque telling of her legacy. It's a legacy we should remember, especially in the month of Black History commemoration. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 
All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Mary Elaine Casey Olson, 78, of Coggan, passed away on Friday, February 24th, at Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 27th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, with a rosary service at 3 p.m. prior. Funeral Mass will begin at 11 a.m. Tuesday, February 28th, at St. Patrick's Church in Ryan, with an additional visitation one hour before. Burial will follow at St. John's Cemetery in Coggan. Elaine was born on September 18, 1944, in Prairieburg, Iowa, the daughter of Wilfred and Helen Tegler Kramer. On October 9, 1965, she was united in marriage to Gerald Casey. From this marriage, three sons were born. After Jerry's death in 1989, she married Kevin Olson on June 27, 1997. She loved her sons and their wives very much. She enjoyed her flowers, gardening, feeding birds, watching the Hawkeyes and Chicago Cubs, cooking, and had many cookbooks. Elaine loved her children, grandchildren, and had fun with her great-grandchildren. Elaine liked the outdoors, camping, boating, and going places with her friends and family. She was known to have a smile for everyone and a great sense of humor. Elaine loved helping and caring for people in need. She loved spending holidays with family and would always invite extra people to her get-togethers. Elaine will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. She loved her sisters and brothers and all the crazy fun-in-laws. Elaine spent a lot of time with her sister Kay and had many fun outings, including going out to Amish territories for flowers. She loved meeting up with Rockwell friends and red hats of Rockwell. Elaine is survived and lovingly remembered by her husband, Kevin Olson, children, Tom, spouse Tracy, Casey, Mike, spouse Darcy, Casey, Tim, spouse Angie, Casey, Jennifer Olson, Teresa Robinson, and Tony, spouse Michelle Olson, 18 grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, siblings Kay Noonan, Bill, spouse Joyce Kramer, Bob, spouse Shar Kramer, Donna, spouse Tom Newsel, Gary, spouse Elaine Kramer, Connie, spouse Dave Arduser, Sharon, spouse Neil Spear, Diane, spouse Wayne Werzer, and Jane, spouse Dave Oldacre, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her first love, Jerry Casey, parents, fathers, and mothers-in-law, Thorvald and Lucille Olson, and Paul and Generose Casey, sister Jeanette Vasky, daughter-in-law Michelle Casey, sisters-in-law Ann Casey and Kathy Casey, brothers-in-law Delbert Noonan, Bill Ryan, Irv Vasky, and David Munsterman, three nephews Kyle and Keith Mersch and Ty Casey, and great-grandson William Feldman. You can share a memory of Elaine at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. John P. Patrick, excuse me, John P. Rarick passed away December 28th, 2022, of North Liberty. Memorial services will be held at 6 p.m. Friday, March 3rd, at Grace United Methodist Church in Tiffin, where a time of visitation will be held from 4.30 p.m. Friday until services, and then again following services. For a complete obituary, to share a thought, memory, or condolence, 
visit the Gay and Siha Funeral and Cremation Service website. Helen Marie Thuma Smith, 88, of Tipton, entered her heavenly home on Thursday, February 23rd. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, March 2nd, at Fry Funeral Home, Tipton. A funeral service will be at 10 a.m. Friday, March 3rd, at the Tipton Bible Church. Helen will be then laid to rest in the Clarence City Cemetery, and a luncheon will follow. A memorial fund has been established and will be shared between the Tipton Bible Church and the Tipton Christian Academy. Cards and memorials may be mailed to 323 West 2nd Street, Tipton, Iowa, 52772. You may read Helen's complete obituary and share online condolences at www.fryfuneralhome.com. Mark Byron Wessels, 68, of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, passed away on February 17th. He was born on November 28, 1954, in Anamosa, Iowa, to George and Lucille Wessels. He grew up in Anamosa and Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he graduated from Manzano High School. He went on to work alongside his family at as an electrician for 50 years, retiring in Tennessee. Mark was known for his warm and kind heart, gentle spirit, sense of humor, generous nature, and infectious smile. He loved golfing, riding dirt bikes, mowing his lawn, snuggling his grandbabies, walking his dog, Kiki, and most of all, spending time with his family. He loved spending his retirement years traveling with his wife in their RV. He was preceded in death by his parents, George and Lucille Wessels, his brothers Larry and David Wessels, and his sister Naomi Rose. He is survived by his beloved wife of 40 years, Peggy Wessels, two children, Shannon, spouse Ben Stiebolt, and Ryan, spouse Macy Wessels, his adoring grandchildren, Benson and David Stilbolt, and siblings Gary, spouse Kim Wessels, Robert, spouse Ju- Judith Wessels, Janet Wessels, Sharon Brink, Cheryl, spouse Dennis France, and Cindy, spouse Pat Mancini. He will be remembered by his expansive, extended family and friends who loved him dearly. The funeral service for Mark Wessels will be held at 2 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th at Goch, Goch Funeral Home, Anamosa. Friends and family are welcome to attend. A celebration of life will be held in Columbia, Tennessee at a later date. Please visit gochonline.com to share your thoughts, memories, and stories and condolences with the family. In lieu of flowers or gifts, memorial donations to Mark's medical fund would be appreciated. To know him was to love him. Mark will be deeply missed by all. He touched the lives of many and will be remembered with immense love and affection. Robert L. Carroll, 73, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Friday, February 24th, in his home. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, March 1st, at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street, southwest Cedar Rapids. Celebration Life Services will be 10.30 a.m. Thursday, March 2nd, at Brosh Chapel. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery, where military rites will be conducted. Robert was born May 25, 1949, in Cedar Rapids, the son of Gerald and E. Catherine Lindsay Carroll. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Vietnam War, where he earned the Purple Heart. Robert was united in marriage to Melody Hesseltine on July 15, 1972. He was a proud member of Union 89 as an iron worker, retiring in 2005. He enjoyed fishing, hunting, camping, 
playing cards, having drinks with his friends, and most of all, spending time with his family, especially the grandchildren. Robert is survived by his wife, Melody, three children, Daniel, Daniel Carroll, Cassandra, spouse Dave Hawkins, and Matthew Carroll, and six grandchildren, Kristen, spouse Ian Hawkins-Hammer, Katrina Hawkins, Carmen Hawkins, Callie Hawkins, Anthony Hawkins, and Daxton Carroll. He was preceded in death by his parents and his brother, Johnny Carroll. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at brushchapel.com. Rosemary Yvonne Hayes, 64, of Hiawatha, died Friday, February 24th at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy following a courageous battle with cancer. Funeral and Mass is at 11 a.m. Wednesday at St. Patrick Catholic Church. Private family burial is at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Rosemary is survived by her daughters, Jennifer, spouse Bill Filter of Marion, and Mary Kinney of Cedar Rapids. Son Ryan, spouse Martha Hayes of Cedar Rapids. Grandchildren, Luke Bradley, Jocelyn Kinney, Alexandra Filter, William Filter III, Emerson Emerson Hayes and Maxwell Hayes, sisters Judith, spouse Tom Blair, and Jane, spouse Larry Masser, brothers Neil, spouse Mark Fagan, and Keith, spouse Peg Fagan, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her husband of 41 years, Richard. Rosemary was born on October 20, 1958, in Missouri Valley, daughter of Kenneth and Julia Tierney Fagan. She graduated in 1977 from Logan Magnolia High School Logan, in Logan and received a master's degree in special education from the University of Iowa. On February 27, 1981, Rosemary married Richard Hayes at St. Patrick Catholic Church. She was a special education teacher for the Cedar Rapids Community School District, retiring in 2019. Rosemary was giving and pure at heart. She enjoyed volunteering at the Catholic Worker House, Central Furniture Rescue, St. Patrick Fish Fries, and supporting her parish. Rosemary liked attending book club, gardening, and having coffee with her friends. She attended all of her kids' and grandkids' events and made all holidays special for her family. Rosemary was a wonderful person who was loved by all and will be greatly missed. A note from her kids, Mom and Dad love to travel and be together, but we know Dad has been missing the love of his life. We are sad to see her go, but happy they can spend their anniversary together in eternal life. Instead of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Central Iowa Furniture Rescue or St. John of the Cross Catholic Worker House. Online condolences can be left at thenfuneralhome.com. Amy Snyder of Swisher passed peacefully in her sleep surrounded by family on Thursday, February 23rd. Services are at 1 p.m. Wednesday at Tehan Funeral Home. Burial is at Shueyville Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family prior to the service from 11 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. Wednesday. Amy is survived by her four children, Pam Bulichek, spouse Jake, Dick Hansel, Don Snyder, spouse Jerry, and Cass Martin. Many grandchildren, great-grandchildren, nieces and nephews, sisters Cleo Piltonsgrid, and Shirley Wenger, and her brother, Verl Deal. She was preceded in death by her husband of 52 years, Wayne, on November 19, 2003. Son, Rick Snyder, granddaughter, Carrie Goddard, daughter-in-law, Jan Hansel, 
and three brothers. Amy Snyder was born on July 26, 1928, daughter of Marie Deal McCollum and Thurlow Raymond Deal in Bridgeport. On September 18, 1951, she married Emery Wayne Snyder. Amy loved camping, boating, fishing, birdwatching, travel, crafts, and most of all spending time with her family. She will be missed. Memorials may be directed to the family, and online condolences can be left at thenfuneralhome.com. Sheila C. Murray Siegel, 85, of Marion, died Saturday, February 25th at her home surrounded by her family. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, March 2nd at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, 3855 Cats Drive, Marion, where a scripture service will be held at 6.30 p.m. Visitation will continue one hour prior to services at the church on Friday. Massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, March 3rd at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion. Inurnment will be the Mount Calvary Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. And finally, David Allen Sovers, formerly of Iowa City, passed away Monday, October 3rd in Maricopa, Arizona, at the age of 79. Memorial services will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, at the mausoleum located at Memory Garden Cemetery in Iowa City. Military honors will be provided, honoring his service to his country. For a complete obituary, to share a thought, memory, or condolence with his family, please visit Gay and Seahawk Funeral and Cremation Service website. Okay, we're going to turn to sports. We'll look at the Iowa women's basketball first. You serious, Clark? Caitlin Clark nails a three-pointer at the buzzer to edge number two Indiana Hoosiers, 86-85. This is by Jeff Linder, out of Iowa City. In each of the first three quarters, Caitlin Clark was an effective closer. At the end of the game, an outright hero. Clark rattled home an off-balance three-pointer as time expired, lifting sixth-ranked Iowa to an 86-85 instant classic Big Ten women's basketball win over number 2 Indiana before a sellout crowd of 15,056 Sunday afternoon at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. I've shot a lot of those, whether it was with my two brothers in the driveway, a lot by myself, Clark said. I'm lucky enough to have done it for my team in front of 15,000 people who wanted to scream about it. Clark enhanced her status of National Player of the Year favorite with 34 points, 9 rebounds, and 9 assists. She reached legend status here long ago, but this was the signature moment of signature moments. The Hawkeyes, 23-6 overall and 15-3 in the Big Ten, faced a two-point deficit with 1.5 seconds left after Indiana's Mackenzie Holmes hit a pair of free throws. In the women's college game, the ball can be advanced beyond half court after a timeout. Monica Cezano's pick sprung Clark open as Kate Martin inbounded from the right sideline. Clark gathered, let fly, and nailed it. Clark sprinted along the baseline with her teammates in hot pursuit. I ran into the crowd and my teammates tackled me, she said. McKenna Warnock added, she's fast, we couldn't get her. And thus ended a bona fide back-and-forth thriller. If you argue this as the most exciting women's basketball game event at Carver, that's a valid stance. Obviously, just an unbelievable game, a horse Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said afterward. Just an unbelievable environment, and the good guys won at the end. With the win, Iowa secured the number two seed in the Big Ten tournament this week in Minneapolis. The Hawkeyes will face seven seed Purdue or ten seed Wisconsin in a quarterfinal. Excuse me, in a quarterfinal at 5:30 p.m. Friday. 
Indiana, 26-2 overall and 16-2 in the Big Ten, wrapped up the outright Big Ten title Tuesday and is a worthy and deserved champion. But the Hoosiers were a sad group in the locker room afterward, according to IU coach Tori Morin. I'm disappointed. They're disappointed. Iowa held a 76-70 lead when Molly Davis converted a steal into a layup with four minutes 34 seconds to go, but the Hoosiers nodded the game at 79-79, 81-81, and 83-83. Cinzano missed a short jumper with 4.6 seconds left, and the Hoosiers called timeout. Then, Cinzano was called for a foul on Holmes in the paint. Originally, the clock showed eight-tenths of a second, then, after replay, was restored to 1.5 seconds. Holmes hit both free throws. At eight-tenths of a second, we would have considered missing the second free throw, Morin said, but with 1.5, we felt there was too much time. Turns out, 1.5 was plenty of time for Clark. She was an end-of-quarter wizard all game. She scored on a drive at the end of the first quarter, hit a basket with five seconds left in the second, swished two free throws with three seconds left in the third, I know this team is going to turn to me in those situations, Clark said. I'm not going to shy away from that. I've been in plenty of those situations. Not all of them went my way. This one did. It deserves more than a footnote, but Kate Martin added 19 points for the Hawkeyes, her second highest total of the season. Cisnano, who played along with Warnock, who along with Warnock played in her final regular season home game, posted 13 points and 9 rebounds. Four Indiana players reached double figures, led by Holmes' 21 points. Chloe Moore McNeil and Sidney Parrish scored 18 apiece, and Grace Berger, 16. In girls' state basketball, Vinton Shellsburg returns to the big stage. After 24 years, a committed senior class and coach has sparked the Vikettes' revival. This is by Jeff Linder, out of Vinton. Abby Davis's replay button got a severe workout last week. I've been watching game film and reliving it, she said. Can you blame her? It was a moment, nine years in the making, that brought out some unexpected reactions from Vinton Shellsburg girls basketball players and staff. I hugged a lot of people, head coach Rich Heisman said, about the aftermath of the Vikettes' Class 3A regional win, final win at Grinnell. Some of them I didn't even know. They could have been from Grinnell, for all I know. It was a moment that Heisman visualized for this group even when they were too small to get the ball to the rim as third graders, when they were absorbing less losses by scores like 40 to 2. Still, he believed in these girls when they were 9, 10, 11 years old. He told us that someday we were going to be difference makers, Davis said. He said we were going to be special. Hazeman saw it then. Now everyone sees it, and whatever happens next, the Vikettes have fulfilled their promise. A former girls' basketball giant, which went dormant for more than a decade, Vinton Shellsburg is in its first state tournament in 24 years. The 10th-ranked Vikettes, whose record is 17-7, face defending champion, top-rated Esterville Lincoln Central, whose record is 24-0, in a Class 3A quarterfinal at 5 p.m. today at Wells Fargo in Des Moines. We are a confident team right now, Heisman said. I guarantee this, neither team is going there to lose. It's going to be a heck of a battle, and I wouldn't ever want to go to fight without these guys. They're just built differently. Elizabeth Griffith said, just making it was never our end goal. The regional final win was February 18th. The Vikettes celebrated through the rest of the weekend, soaking in a community's adulation. Then it was back to work. 
We got to Monday and the focus was back, Sophia Gretner said. Ashley Davis said, we've probably practiced the hardest we've practiced all year, ELC has. Quick guards and we've got to be ready. Harold Shepard built an elite program at Vinton, then at Vinton Shellsburg. Conference championships came regularly. The Vikettes went to eight state tournaments between 1978 and 1999, winning a six-player championship in 1984 and a Class 3A five-player crown in 1995. Vinton Shellsburg won a WAMAC conference title in 2004-05, then came decline. In an eight-year span from 2011 and 12 to 2018-19, the program won 22 games and lost 154. That's one win for every seven losses. When we were younger, we would come to the home games, but we'd get bored, sit in the corner, and play games, Briley Bruce said. It would have been 2015-16 when the current senior class began playing, sort of, organized basketball as third graders under Heisman. His daughter Molly was on that team. She now is involved in dance and serves as a basketball manager. In fourth grade, the team started to win a little bit. By fifth grade, they started to win some tournaments. As seventh grade math teacher, Heisman was hired as middle school coach when this group hit seventh grade, then took the varsity job when it came open in 2019. This class went 10-2 and in seventh grade, 11-0 and in eighth. They became a confident team, Heisman said. The year before this class entered high school, Vinton Shellsburg was 4-18. and The next year, with six freshmen on the varsity roster and Hazeman in charge, it was 12-11. and When they were freshmen, they didn't care that they were freshmen, Heisman said. Those six seniors have stuck it out. Griffith, Davis, Gretner, Meyer, and Bruce comprise the starting lineup, with Kaylee Burke joining junior Julia Johnson as key reserves. The Vikettes have won seven straight games. Since Christmas break, we flipped a switch, Bruce said. There's three parts to a season, before break, after break, and the postseason. Once the postseason came, it was do-or-die time. Vinton Shellsburg will be a decisive underdog against ELC. The Vikettes don't care. I don't think that means anything, Burke said. No matter what, they've fulfilled Haysman's early observations. They've been difference makers. And yes, they're special. Sports at Vinton Vinton Shellsburg has been pretty meh, Brooke said. We've brought some life back. Okay, we'll finish up with one last story out of the community section. University of Iowa, Iowa State bestowing four honorary degrees. Autism animal handling expert Temple Grandin among honorees by Vanessa Miller. They've gone to the likes of actor Gene Wilder, whose roles included Willy Wonka in the 1970s film adaptation of Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, along with George Gallup, a founder of the Gallup Poll, former Iowa Governor Robert Ray, and NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson. And this spring, the University of Iowa and Iowa State University will bestow another four honorary degrees on individuals who've demonstrated extraordinary achievements in research, scholarship, education, art, activism, human rights, or innovation. This is really the fun part about some of our efforts, UI Provost Kevin Craigle told the Board of Regents on Wednesday before it approved the four honorary doctorate degrees to be bestowed at the upcoming Spring 2023 commencement. When asked whether the recipients will be at the graduation ceremonies, Craigle said, that's a requirement. They have to be present to accept the honorary degree at commencement. Temple Grandin. Iowa State is awarding an honorary degree of science degree to Temple Grandin, an animal sciences professor at Colorado State University and autism activist. 
She was born with autism in the 1940s in Boston, but wasn't diagnosed until adulthood after enduring intensive speech therapy at age two and navigating ongoing challenges throughout her school-aged years. Meaningful mentors guided and motivated Grannon toward a career in animal science, among Iowa State's most esteemed programs, ranking 13th nationally and 32nd internationally in plant and animal science. Faculty from the ISU Department of Animal Science nominated Grandin for an honorary degree, given her prestige as a world leader in the design of livestock handling facilities. In North America, almost half of all cattle processing facilities include Dr. Grandin's invention of a center track restrainer system, according to the ISU honorary degree request. She works with large feedlots and commercial meat packers, including Cargill, Tyson, JBS Swift, Smithfield, Seaboard, Cactus Feeders, Costco, and many others. Among her many publications related to both livestock handling and autism, Grandin wrote the Recommended Animal Handling, handling Guidelines and Audit Guide for the North American Meat Institute, and she's been instrumental in implementing animal welfare auditing programs used by McDonald's, Wendy's, Whole Foods, and others. Her impacts on autism awareness and humane animal handling have been highlighted in articles and interviews in the New York Times, People, Time, National Public Radio, 2020, the View, and the BBC, according to Iowa State. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Ritiker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <music>